Welcome back to Invasion of the Potty People and welcome back to Fright Fest. Yes, our beloved genre festival is on the horizon and we're getting excited about it, aren't we guys? Oh you yeah, know, this is the horror fans Christmas. Um... <laughs> you know what scares me the most? What's that, Vincent? When Fright Fest takes over and I totally lose control, I like it. <laughs> James, can you contain yourself more around Fright Fest or is it equally uh, control taking? I can't think of a movie quote. Um... <laughs> I'm, I, it's why I'm here, or part of the reason I'm here, to set these sort of challenges. <laughs> I mean, when Fright Fest is about, I just focus entirely on that. And anything else, I just say, hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> I don't feel I we can say, can't say it anymore because. That's how a certain prime minister ended his last, well, touch wood, last prime minister's questions. Yeah, Yeah, that's, hey, come on. That that phrase, that quote is so iconic. I think it it will surpass, it will survive. It can survive Boris Johnson. And so just like we can, Um, you know, and I I predict in 50 years, if if we're not all dead, um, people will remember us, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Terminator for Asta La Vista Baby rather than some British PM. <laughs> right, let's let's hoik this podcast away from politics. Politics is crazy all the time and that's boring. Um, but often horrific. Often horrific. So it <laughs> does fit the genre well. Oh, yeah. um, so we're Invasion of the Potty People and we're going to talk to you again about genre films, about what's new in horror, what's coming up. We're going to give you our picks of Fright Fest. We've all gone off and picked a few films of Fright Fest that we're excited for, or at least intrigued by. And then we're going to do a little bit about Marvel because we've got some plans coming down the pipeline with Marvel. And then we're going to review a little horror that came out called The Black Phone, which, you know, some of you might have seen because it had its posters everywhere. So let's start with Fright Fest, that mecca of horror, that delightful genre festival that lands every august bank holiday that us three are going to we've all got tickets together this time and we're going to see a whole heap of films there are i think something like 65 to 70 films playing across the festival so it plays across four screens there's the main screen plus an additional screen which you can pay for tickets for those on the main screen and then three smaller screens that have other films playing across the weekend so you can't see everything You've got to pick and choose, and that's part of the fun. And what we've done is we've gone through the lineup and we picked a film a day that we're either excited for or curious about, and we're going to go through them. So you can have some films to look out for, maybe buy a ticket for, or if you're going, and if you're going, let us know, uh, films you can get tickets for. So I'm going to kick off with the second film of the festival. That's how we do it here. We have a film called Visitor from the Future, which is on the Thursday, so the 25th, at 8 p.m. for us uh, ticket uh, pass holders and 8.30 p.m. for the day pass holders and the people buying individual tickets. Now, this has taken my fancy. It's a world premiere. It's in, about an ecological disaster, and someone is sent back in time to meet the daughter of the man responsible for this catastrophe to help him stop it. And it sounds kind of fun it's french so it's le visiteur de future for, for example so it sounds 
like a lot of fun. I kind of have a lot of fun with time travel films. If this does it well, it could be a really great opening film. I haven't seen a trailer or anything for this. I'm going fairly blind. I'm just going in by the synopsis on the Fright Fest uh, website. The director directed this portmanteau, this uh, collection of stories a couple of years ago that played at one of the virtual festivals that I didn't see but heard great things about. So I'm quietly confident this film might be pretty decent. Uh, James, what's your Thursday pick? Well, it's funny you went for the second film of the day because my pick for <laughs> the opening day is the first film of the day, the festival's opening film, The Lair. It's the latest from director Neil Marshall. It's opening this wonderful festival we're all excited to. So how could I not pick the inaugural film, which pretty much sets the, sets the tone for what is going to be a fantastic five days. Now, this one's described as the dirty half dozen meets the thing. I like the thing. And Neil Marshall <laughs> has done good films in the past. I mean, The Descent and Dodge Soldiers. How can we not love them? Yes, there's also been Hellboy, and that's just the tip of a less favourable follow-up in Neil Marshall's career. But who knows? Maybe this will be the one to take us back to being excited for his films. Maybe this one will be good. We never know until we watch it. So my pick is the opening film, The Lair. Now, Vincent, what is your first day pick for Fright Fest? Well, my first day pick is um, to be found in the Discovery screen. Um, both Russell and James have picked films in the Arrow video in the Arrow video screen. Mine is the second screening in Discovery screen on Thursday, and it is Croc. I love me a creature feature. Um, this is a UK film, world premiere. Um, where a family united wedding venue, but nearby there's a nest of hungry crocodiles. Yay! Um, when I first attended Fright Fest back in 2019, one of the highlights of that particular festival was Crawl. So my hope is that Croc can measure up to Crawl. But even if it doesn't, I'm looking forward to lots of um, snappy fun. <laughs> Let's hope it isn't a croc of shit. <laughs> Let us hope. So that's the Thursday. So the Thursday is a shorter schedule. You get three slots in the main screen and two slots in one of the discovery <coughs> screens. But the festival properly kicks off on the Friday and it will run until uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. So until the August bank holiday, Monday, it ends. So on the Friday, I have gone for a film called Hounded, which is on the second discovery screen, which bizarrely is the larger of the um other screens and this is on at 1 10 p.m and it is this british comedy about a group of um thieves from the city who come into trouble and are hunted by rich people and i love stories of rich people hunting people i find it hilarious i find it hilarious when things take a turn i assume they will in this they'll take a turn and the uh, Fees will get the upper hand against the rich people. It's got a pretty fun British cast in it. It's got the likes of Samantha Bond and James Lance and Larry Lamb. And it sounds like a lot of fun. It is against a couple of other great picks in this time slot. And that's the thing with Fright Fest is you get a couple of really great clashes. But 
hounded sounds like oodles of fun to me. And that's why I go to Fright Fest is for the serious films, but also for the really fun, ridiculous ones like this. Uh, so James, what's your Friday film? My Friday film is the first one on that day in the main screen. I've gone for Next Exit, a film which has been described as a funny and warm-hearted cross-country trip between two strangers who are ready to die. Now, it's it doesn't sound like a film that's strictly horror. It sounds like the kind of on-the-edges genre fair which shows how varying Fright Fest's output can be. And it seems like I'm really sold on the on the premise, but I'll be honest, I'm here for Rahul Kohli. I lo- he's been wonderful in iZombie, and people know him from Midnight Mass and The Haunting of Bly Manor, and some people know him for his hilarious Twitter account. But either way, I'm here for it, so that's next exit. And now I shall take the next exit so Vincent can describe his Friday film. Well, uh, my Friday film um, is in Discovery Screen 3 at one o'clock on Friday. And the film is Daughter. Um, One thing I have certainly found as I have um, watched and reviewed and discussed more and more and read about more and more horror films is the most common cause of horror is the family. And in the case of Daughter, um, this is described Um, as um, in equal measure a horrific chamber piece as a moving ensemble about the intersection between family and religion. Um, It features um, a, uh, it involves a young woman who is inducted by a strange man into a bizarre family to live as their new surrogate sibling. Um, I am here for something. What I want is something that's going to make me go, okay, that's a bit weird. Okay, that's very creepy. Oh, God, don't do that. Um, And that's what I'm hoping to get from Daughter. Um, Yeah, it's also kind of interesting that it's a debut feature um, from writer, director, producer Corey Deshaun. And it is, um, as I understand it, shot in 16 millimeter, which is an interesting stylistic choice. So I'm hoping to be thoroughly disturbed by some beautiful 16 millimeter footage with Daughter. Um, at one o'clock on Friday in Discovery Screen 3. Russell, what are you planning to start off with on Saturday? Well, I'm not going to start off. I'm going to end my day on Saturday with Deadstream, which is on at 11pm. And so Fright Fest has a wonderful knack of picking up some rather late night gems. So the first year I went, I watched this film called I Trapped the Devil, which was, I watched it at like 11 o'clock at night and it has a weird dreamy vibe to it that just kind of sunk into me. I also saw a film called Porno, which was a lot. And I saw that one late at night. And this is the late night offering this time. And it is about a disgraced YouTuber who locks himself in a haunted house called Death Manor. And the reason I want to watch this is because apparently went down a storm at South by Southwest Festival. The people I know who have seen this film loved it. And I think the perfect way to kind of take some downtime from watching five films that day is to watch a sixth one, which will be a ridiculously silly horror comedy. So yeah, Deadstream is perhaps the film I'm most excited for on just a kind of base audience enjoyment level. I think this will be a hoot to watch with an audience. James, what's your pick for the Saturday? 
Well, my Saturday pick is in Discovery Screen 2, the big one in the Prince Charles, at 6pm. I've gone for a First Blood film called Walking Against the Rain. First Blood, for those who are unaware, are essentially um, first-time directors given the opportunity to bring their vision to life. And it's a strand that premieres at Frightfest. Now, it can be mixed bag. You never know what you're going to get. But there are some wonderful ones, which I remember Benny Loves You from the virtual Frightfest back in 2020. And Walking Against the Rain, I'm hoping, will be on that end of the quality spectrum. And the idea is behind this film is you have two strangers who are navigating their way across a post-apocalyptic wasteland. And they can only, they're only communicating with each other with two battery-operated radios that are on their last legs. And while they're trying to survive, they're being chased by this evil entity. And... It's been described as a graphic post-apocalyptic road movie. And to be honest, how can I not sell it any further? I fucking love everything that sound it sounds like we're going to get from Scott Lias's featured uh, film debut. So my choice at 6pm in Discovery Screen 2 is Walking Against the Rain. Now, Vincent, what is your pick for the, for the Saturday? My pick for Saturday is first thing at um, 11 a.m. in Discovery One, The Ones You Didn't Burn. I've realised I have a particular affection for um, films where the title is more like a sentence like that. So The Ones You Didn't Burn, Everything Everywhere All at Once, You Were Never Really Here, that kind of thing. Um, this is uh, another kind of uh, film about a messed up family um, as two siblings come back to their old family farm one of them starts having nightmares of a woman rising from the sea um, and gets <clears throat> and spirals into addiction while the other sibling starts getting close to the people that the family exploited um, all of which sounds like it's going to involve like spooky locations and mysterious images of like, is this real? Is it not? So maybe there'll be some opportunities for frame analysis horror, which I do so very love. And the idea of it may even have a folk horror vibe if it's to do with, um, you know, these uh, people taking over land that holds something beyond their understanding. So that is um, what I am looking forward to at 11am on Saturday in Discovery Screen 1, the ones you didn't burn. Now then, after we've had, you know, the two full days and an evening, um, <laughs> we still have another two days to go. Russell, what will you be plonking yourself in to see on Sunday? I'm sure fully alert, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. So the film I have picked for Sunday is Brie Grant's latest. Now, Brie Grant directed 12 hour shift which was i believe the first fright fest virtual festival and was one of the best films of that festival it's a really delightfully dark cohen-esque thriller and she also wrote a film called lucky which was at another fright fest and is a decidedly odd film that's crawled under my skin so she is back with a film called torn hearts which is about a musical duo who um connect with one of their icons but things take uh seem to take a violent bloody turn as part of them meeting their icon 
And I'm here because Brie Grant is such an interesting director to me, is such an interesting presence within genre cinema and is doing stuff that I find fascinating. So I'm going to plonk myself down in Discovery Screen 2 at 6.30 to watch this film, to soak it up. And hopefully it'll be another great one from her because she seems a talent that is exceptional right now. So yeah, so Torn Hearts is my one for Sunday. I'm not sure if it's a horror necessarily, but it certainly is something that looks intriguing to me uh james what are you going to watch on sunday well my sunday pick is i hope i'm gonna say this title right because it's got fours in the place of the a's so my pick is hazard on the main screen at 3 45 p.m if you have the weekend pass or 4 15 p.m if you have a day or a pass just for that uh, showing and the idea behind this film is you have this man who can't imagine his life without his golden sports car. But while that's something he's so enamored with in his life, his nephew just sees it as a lightning fast getaway car. So when they organize a heist and things go a bit tits up, it's then becomes oh, quite the... <laughs> quite the experience to make sure the the beloved car doesn't end up as a hearse for these two men and what's been described as death race 2022 and i think on the sunday when we've had two full days of this festival we're gonna need just something a bit easygoing and nothing a bit too cerebral and frankly a good splatter flick just seems like what we're going to need on day four so my choice is hazard now vincent what is your sunday pick my sunday pick um kind of um i guess falls in sort of a combination of both of your picks because like russell it's at 6 30 on sunday um, or oh, 6.30 in the Arrow video screen, where I'll be seeing it, although, but it's in the, the 7 o'clock in um, the Shudder screen, if you've got the day pass. Um, and it is also, I think, of a similar tone to what you were saying, James, something fairly easygoing, you know, lots of um, uh, splattery fun, and that is Wolf Manor. Uh, this is a bit of a meta um splatter horror comedy where there is a low budget vampire movie being shot in an old abandoned house but it's a full moon and well and the mansion's resident werewolf doesn't take kindly to these uninvited guests and you know which is fair you know beware of dog always look for these signs um so it's it, it, werewolf movies are in are quite well represented at fright fest it's a tricky genre, and more often than not, it seems to go down the route of horror comedy, and it, and it seems Wolf Manor will be doing much the same. And I have two particular interests in this. Um, I went to school with a bloke called Rupert Proctor, and one of the actors in Wolf Manor is called Rupert Proctor. I'm pretty sure it's not the same person, <laughs> but he was a good bloke, and I remember, and that's a nice memory. And also, one thing about this film that looks very, very creepy is that it is set in darkest Shropshire. And a long time ago, uh, myself and some friends went on a late night drive from darkest Staffordshire to deepest Shropshire. 
and it wasn't a particularly weird night. So I'm hoping that Wolf Manor will be a much weirder Shropshire night. So that's um, how we plan to fill out, well, something we'll be doing on Sunday. And then at the end of it all, the final day when we're probably somewhat flagging. Haven't Russell. seen a vegetable in a long time. Haven't seen a vegetable be... in a long time, no. Unless, you know, we end up somewhere we didn't expect one of the nights. Um, <laughs> mm. Russell, what will you be indulging in on the Monday? So one of the things I really like about Fright Fest is that they program documentaries and they once again have got a number that are really uh, interesting and good on the bill. But the one that I'm most interested in is one called Living with Chucky. Now, for most horror fans, they have a fondness for Child's Play as a franchise. It is one that's gone through so many iterations and has evolved with the horror genre around it that it's utterly charming. And this is essentially the making of this franchise from the perspective of the people who made it directed by the head puppeteer his daughter Kyra Gardner and so it has all the key players in the mix of the likes of Brad Dourif, uh, Dan Mantini, Jennifer Tilly all pop up in this documentary and it feels like an utterly charming way to explore this horror franchise from the perspective of the people who have lived with it because the thing about the Child's Play franchise is that most of the people involved in it have lived with it. It has retained the same actors and has just grown with them. Um, yeah, so this looks like a lot of fun. I am excited for this one. This one looks utterly charming. So this is the film for me. It's Living With Chucky. It's on at 10.45 in the morning on Discovery Screen Free. So, you know, start your morning off with this and you might have a fun time. Uh, James, what have you picked of the last films? Well, my last film on the bank holiday Monday is the penultimate film to be shown on the Arrow screen at 6.15 or on the Shudder screen at 6.45. I have chosen Barbarian. Now, the initial premise is already frightening in that a young woman arrives at a rental home to find it's been double booked and there's already someone staying there. That's horrifying enough especially for us brits but as the around premise said, drive away mm-hmm. but as the premise says there's a lot more to fear now i don't know what is going on in this film past that all i know is bill skarsgård isn't there so oh yes if you've seen it then you know there's plenty to fear left over but i've also looked over a few reactions and no spoilers but I've just seen one word repeatedly pop up. Bonkers. And penultimate film of the day, bring on the bonkers. <laughs> so that's my Monday choice, Barbarian. And Vincent, what is your choice for the last day of this 2022 Fright Fest? Well, my pick for the last day of Fright Fest 2022 is the final film of um, Fright Fest 2022, showing at nine o'clock in the Arrow screen and 9.30 in the Shutter screen, I am looking, I will be seeing Fall. Now, this uh, features um, an avid rock climber who, following the tragic death of her husband, um, her friend Hunter suggests they climb to the top of a remote, abandoned 2,000 foot high radio tower where they can scatter her husband's ashes and then things don't go quite as planned. Now, I am simultaneously very keen on Fall, 
but also quite trepidatious because at Glasgow Fright Fest, one of the films I was most looking forward to was The Ledge, which was a similar premise. A couple of climbers um, following the death of one of their partners and things went quite badly, but nothing went as badly as in as it did for anybody watching that movie, going like, oh, just stop, please, please stop, stop. So despite that, the, the, the very premise of a film taking place on a, that is to be vertigo inducing, that is to using the terrifying environment that's hopefully going to have me going like, ah, 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 just, uh, <clears throat> that's what I want fall to be. And so, yeah, I, uh, I'm, maybe I'm setting myself up for a fall, but that's what I'm very much anticipating uh, to finish Fright Fest on the Monday. So, and hopefully it'll be such a horrifying watch that I'll just need to have many, many stiff drinks that night. And uh, yeah, I can, that's one way to round off a festival. I mean, yeah, so we've just picked 15 films for you, but there are so many more for you to sink your teeth into. So go off and look on the Fright Fest website at all of what you can go to. There's there's plenty of other films I'm excited for across the weekend. And there'll definitely be a few gems in there. There'll definitely be some films that will either live up to the hype or surprise us. Maybe, maybe the lair will be as good as Neil Marshall's Dog Soldier, which is also playing, or his descent. So maybe that's what's gonna happen here. We have 50 feet of rope. I think I can drop myself lower. Okay, I'm gonna jump onto the bag. Hunter, no! Hunter! And one from one mega celebration of cinema, let's go to another. So coming up soon, we the potty people are going to dive into the MCU and do an episode for each of the phases that take place. Because as announced at uh South by Southwest. Comic-Con. Comic-Con. We're coming to the end of phase four, which is surprising because it's felt like phase four has only just begun. And I couldn't tell you what the connecting tissue is of phase four, but phase four of the MCU is coming to a close with Black Panther 2 in November. So what we're going to do is we're going to do an episode on each phase leading up to the release of Black Panther 2, and then we'll talk about phase four. But before that point, we're going to just dip our toe into the wider Marvel spectrum and talk a bit about the non-MCU. So Vincent, What's the difference between Marvel and the MCU? Well, on the one hand, the difference between Marvel and the MCU is a lot of fairly boring legal stuff. But an easy way to tell is go by the opening credits. Because if it's an MCU film, the opening credits will say Marvel Studios. If it isn't an MCU film, it'll just say Marvel. And it may say in a bit more detail, in studio presents in association with Marvel. Now, the reason we have this situation is because uh, during the 1990s, when Marvel were facing bankruptcy, in order to make some money, various uh, characters, various pieces of Marvel's intellectual property were sold to different studios, which means different studios have different rights. And what this means is that the first decade, pretty much, of Marvel movies were self-contained. And it sounds kind of weird to say that now when we're in an era of cinematic universes. But it's fair to say Marvel Studios was absolutely a trailblazer in that regard. 
thanks to Marvel Studios and the MCU, we got the DCEU, the MonsterVerse, the <laughs> we didn't get the Dark Universe, but we got the attempt <laughs> at it, um, and <clears throat> expect more to come. But crucially, the films that we'll be talking about today, although they have Marvel involvement, they are in association with Marvel. None of them are produced by Marvel Studios. And this is really important because it was this um, decade of non of, Marvel, of films by other studios based on Marvel properties that helped to create what we now understand not only as Marvel, but as the superhero genre <clears throat> more broadly. I have said, as have others, that the current superhero boom started with Blade in 1998. Fun fact here, Blade was released by New Line Cinema. New Line Cinema um, were part of Warner Brothers, who also owned DC. So there was actually a time when we could have had Blade and Batman in the same movie. Never happened, never will, but hey, <laughs> alternate universe maybe. Um, so for instance, New Line Cinema had Blade, Spider-Man was with Sony, Fox had X-Men, Daredevil and Fantastic Four. Um, Hulk, The Incredible Hulk was sold to Universal and there's an interesting legacy here because Universal still owned the rights to a standalone Hulk movie. Now, somebody is probably saying, yes, but what about The Incredible Hulk? The one from 2008 with Edward Norton and so on. Well, that is actually the exception that proves the rule um, because that is an MCU film. Um, uh, came out in 2008, right after Iron Man. Marvel Studios produced Iron Man and all subsequent MCU films, including The Incredible Hulk, which was distributed by Warner Brothers, sorry, distributed by Universal, but all other MCU films from Iron Man to Thor The Dark World were distributed by Paramount, because that was the distribution deal. And then Disney, by that point, had bought Marvel Studios, and everything since then has been from Disney. Right, that was the boring stuff. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't. Um, but it does mean that any standalone Hulk film would have to be distributed by Universal, which is why we don't have any other standalone Hulk films. But we will come back to that uh, about standalone Hulk films. So what I say is interesting is that these films from like Blade um, to, I suppose, well, certainly up to Spider-Man 3, constitute the development of the superhero genre. And there are variations. Blade was kind of superhero by default. The fact that it was a, a kind of character he had, that Blade was based on a Marvel property meant, well, that makes it superhero, right? But watching Blade, um, it's a film that combines horror, martial arts, black exploitation, and action. X-Men demonstrated that you can have a family blockbuster with lots of fancy effects that still engages with serious topics like intolerance and oppression. Now, uh, my uh, partner said one time that when she went to see X-Men for the first time, in the opening sequence, she thought she was in the wrong cinema because how many action blockbusters start in a concentration camp? Then with Spider-Man, Sam Raimi and his collaborators developed the ideal balance for a family film. Now, Blade, X-Men, Spider-Man each had sequels that repeated but improved upon the formula and this started the trend of superhero sequels often surpassing their predecessors. Would you guys agree that Spider-Man 2, X2 and Blade 2 are at least as good if not better than what came before? 
I'll agree to that. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. They they took what worked and added to it. Yep. And then further developments followed because you have the more adult-toned Daredevil and its spin-off Electra, as well as the more visually experimental Hulk, which we'll come back to. More, even more kid-friendly offers with Tim Story's Fantastic Four and Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. And all of this means that by the time Iron Man was released in 2008, the superhero genre had crystallised. Audiences knew what to expect, filmmakers knew what to produce, studios knew what to deliver and market. Thus, the stage was set for taking the genre to different places. DC went one way with The Dark Knight, let's do superhero films that are something else as well, and Marvel went the way of a cinematic universe. Now, bear in mind that um, non-MCU non Marvel did continue because Fox made more X-Men films and Fantastic Four films <laughs> until Disney bought 20th Century Fox. Hence, these various delights are now available on Disney+. They're our sponsor, right? Good. Um, so if anyone asks why the X-Men are not part of the MCU, the reasons are studio ownership and the lack of narrative crossover. Until now, yes, fine, fine. But if there's one, but it, if there's one thing that comic book and superhero franchises do when they get the chance, it's retconning. Now, it is interesting to compare the MCU and the X-Men franchises because the X-Men series is wildly inconsistent, despite being more straightforward. Now that Disney owns the X-Men again, Marvel via Disney owns X-Men, we have had indications of retconning, such as Charles Xavier turning up in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and crossover such as multiple Spider-Men in Spider-Man No Way Home. So maybe we're now seeing the Marvel Cinematic Multiverse. It is, of course, worth noting that Spider-Man is a special case of deals between Disney and Sony. And why? Money. Because take the five Spider-Man films produced by Sony between 2002 and 2014 grossed almost $4 billion. Disney and Sony wanted that cash cow as much as they can. So the deal is that Marvel and Disney can feature Spider-Man in Avengers films, and Sony does standalone Spider-Man films, which can feature other MCU characters like Tony Stark, Nick Fury, Stephen Strange. So that's what Marvel is when it's not MCU. <laughs> All of which allows me to segue seamlessly into our picks of non-MCU Marvel. Each of us have picked a personal favourite, a choice that is not generally popular, but we like it, and a stinker. <laughs> and at the end, there might be some tomato action. Because <laughs> why not? All right. Well, um, Russell, why don't you kick us off with your favourite, your the personal favourite non-MCU Marvel movie? So my personal favourite is... and. Contender for one of the greatest comic book films I think ever made, and a film we'll be covering in the next series on the main, not just for kids' feed, is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is an extraordinary work that takes a character that's been done seemingly many times before and finds new stuff to do. In fact, finds many new things to do by introducing, well, not quite interesting, but bringing into the comic book realm the multiverse, obviously it's been in comics, it's been on TVs, there are films before this, but 
So, for example, I watched Sliding Doors the other day, which is a perfect early multiverse film in terms of that someone's life has two paths it can go down, depending on what happens with her in a train. And in this, stop me if you've heard this before, multiple Spider-Mans converge on one universe and have to work together to restore balance to the multiverse, to get them all back to their respective homes. The reason why I think this film is such an effective comic book movie is because it is one of the best at expressing the idea that anyone can wear a mask. Anyone can be a hero from a talking humanoid pig through to a young teen who comes from a mixed race background who is trying to fulfill the shoes of another Spider-Man who dies early on in this film. So yeah, I think this film is fantastic, moving, funny, uh, genuinely exciting. What it does for animation is it's probably up there with Toy Story and its impact on animation that it gives creatives the keys to go off and be anarchic and to be creative and to not pursue CGI perfection, but pursue something else. And it also makes me cry for about the last 45 minutes. I am in tears for much of the last act because I find this such a moving representation of its world, of its characters. Spider-Man is a character we've seen so many times before, but I think he's at his best here because we do get to see a perfectly sculpted one early on. We get to see the one who's kind of overweight and divorced. We get to see the teen version of Spider-Man. We get to see all these versions of Spider-Man all converge into one film. And I can't stress enough that I think this film is perhaps better than anything the MCU has done with regards to a singular character. I think the MCU has done very exciting things in terms of its kind of epic sweep in a film. So something like Endgame or Infinity Wars are perfect examples of this. But what Into the Spider-Verse does and its kind of faith in an audience to go with quite an out there story means that I think it's one of the best comic book movies ever made. So yeah, that's my pick. Very strong pick. I certainly have, would have no argument with anything you said there. Uh, James, how about your uh, non-MCU Marvel pick? Well, my pick, my first pick, is a film which has been mentioned already a few times. It's Stephen Norrington's Blade. Now, I saw this film on the big screen late last year, and it'd been the first time I'd seen this film in quite a while i'd say at least 2014 was probably the last time i saw it um but they just re-watching this reminded me how excellent this film is from that blood-drenched opening in a nightclub to the chilly moscow stinger which closes it this is an absolutely electric film which as vincent said reinvigorated superhero films um even if it does lean more towards horror and it took the character of blade who was best known for a couple episodes appearance in the animated spider-man show and uh, elevated him into the height of the starring rock character in a free season free film franchise and even getting his own TV show on I think it was Spike TV or something but a lot of people don't talk about that maybe for good reason I've never seen it but key central to this film is a 
powerhouse performance by Wesley Snipes as the Daywalker himself. And not just him, there's also Stephen Noring, uh, not Stephen Norrington, he's the director. Um, Stephen Dorff as Deacon Frost, the villain, he's so good. I remember there was talks for ages about a prequel with him and it's easy to see why. He's such an engrossing figure and uh, this isn't going to be the last we see of Blade because the MCU has plans for the character. Now, there are some big shoes for Mahershala Ali to fill, but it's Mahershala Ali. He's going to rock the role, especially knowing that immediately after winning the Oscar for Green Book, he went into the Marvel Studios and said, I want to be Blade, which is that's clout. And he's going to rock it, but I know one way that Wesley Snipes is already going to be better because Mahershala Ali is not going to be able to say some motherfuckers always trying to ice skate uphill. And <laughs> my choice for a great Marvel film that isn't in the MCU is Blade. Uh, have you guys seen it? Oh, yeah. I remember seeing it um, very clearly on... Uh, video i think back in the summer of 99 um and it was fun because i could you could sort of see the influences throughout us like right that looks a bit um no, that looks the, at one point he pulls out a motorbike and it's oh, that's very terminator 2e um the you know the uh, the dark neo-noir sort of um scenery um well, it felt like a lot of things blade runner for instance no coincidence maybe and then the final clash um, i remember the point when um, Stephen Dorff's Deacon Frost and Blade and Wesley Snipes' Blade clash swords. Like this looks just like Highlander. <laughs> um, but despite that, despite being, you know, the ref the influence is being clear. It is so much fun, so stylish, so confident, and yeah, you're right. And has some really killer one-liners, like that one you mentioned, um, an earlier one actually, when a cop shoots a blade and when he's trying to intervene to help and the cop shoots at him and Blade's response is, motherfucker, are you out of your damn mind? <laughs> um, yeah, so the one thing I think Mahershala Ali needs to make sure he does is not, which he, I'm sure he will, not attempt to imitate Wesley Snipes. Ali will make this his own. And yeah, and but he's, yeah, he's got a very big flowing black coat to fill. Vincent, what's your great pick for a Marvel movie outside the MCU? Well, my great pick is going back to, the, to everybody's favourite web slinger. Um, and it's kind of a basic answer, but my pick, um, pick of a great non-MCU Marvel film is 2004's Spider-Man 2. Um, I think that in 2004, Spider-Man 2 may have actually been the pinnacle of the superhero genre. Granted, it was, I mentioned before, the idea of the genre being crystallised. I think it hit an absolute peak with Spider-Man 2 in areas that in some have not yet been surpassed, um, if, although they may have been equaled. Um, I think the film is emotionally rich. I think it's visually inventive and it's utterly exhilarating. It's surprising that it managed to, um, in the UK, earn only a PG certificate because some of the action there is pretty intense as Sam Raimi reaches into his sort of evil dead box of tricks um, with a very mobile camera 
Um, I, you know, I grew up loving Spider-Man um, uh, from animated series, and but my my, my favourite Spider-Man villain was always Doctor Octopus. So to have Doc Ock appear in such beautiful form um, uh, by Alfred Molina um, worked so well for me, um, and it you know it manages to the to keep sort of the bigger the bigger stakes of like you know how does um, you know, Spider-Man battle against this extremely dangerous new enemy, while also balancing that with the personal dramas, the, you know, his ongoing relationship with um, Mary Jane and his ongoing difficult relationship with um, Harry Osborn. I think that those three um, across the um, Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy of Tobey Maguire's, Peter Parker, um, Kirsten Dunst's, MJ Watson and Mary Jane Watson and uh, James Franco's Harry Osborne really provide a strong um, emotional core throughout. Um, the in in terms of aspects of the film that are yet to be surpassed, the train battle sequence between Spider-Man and Doc Ock remains stunning. Um, that is the kind of action sequence where, however far-fetched it may be, it still feels physical and embodied. And there's this pain in there, and, you, and I can feel, you know, we're rushing along with that train. Um, what we actually do is it takes the Spider-Man cliche of with great power comes great responsibility and really makes something of it because we see the great power and we see the great responsibility. And I think Sam Raimi and his collaborators play those out beautifully. Do you two uh, concur? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. One yeah, of it's, the it's great. best. And uh, yeah, the, definitely the sequence where um, Doc Ock is under sedation, is under sedative, and the doctors are trying to prise the arms off of him. Goes very Evil Dead in a really enjoyable way. The bit in the bank is great fun. It, 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 it uses the character Spider Man really well, and there are aspects that I miss of what his trilogy did. His trilogy was really good at getting across. I guess the experience of being Spider-Man, I guess the experience of being this uh, teenage boy who gets these superpowers and what that actually means. Like, uh, I really enjoy, in particular, the MCU TV shows. They seem to be able to, going back to that, being able to spend the time to have the characters be people, which is nice. So yeah, no, Spider-Man 2 is great. Yeah, it's that little bit which makes um, Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker so relatable in how he's um, he has to go to the bank to help his aunt with a loan. He can be he can stop muggers, car thieves, and battle supervillains, but he can't prevent the bank from evicting his aunt and hmm. the very basic um, basic fears of not having enough money to sustain yourself. It's hmm wonderful down to earth in such a wall crawling superhero film ah the great irony that within these immense um commercial products what is the greatest enemy capitalism always <laughs> <laughs> although i guess i guess that doesn't really work later on with you know people like tony stark but that's another story um actually just another thing i will say on spider-man 2 in fact all of sam raimi's spider-man films something they do which I think, which didn't appear in Spider-Man again until the very end of Spider-Man Far From Home, is that um, fantastic exhilaration of swinging through um, the city um, mm. to 
place the the viewer in the position of the superhero. In 1978, Superman the movie told us, you'll believe a man can fly. But I think with Spider-Man and even more with Spider-Man 2, it was a matter of, you'll believe you can swing through the city. <laughs> so yeah, that was part of, I think, what makes, um, helped make Spider-Man 2 particularly special. Now, I think it'd be fair to say that Blade and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and Spider-Man 2 are pretty well-liked, very well, um, from most quarters of um, superhero fandom. But let's consider some now that are less popular, that some people aren't, that are not perhaps not very popular at all, mm -hmm. but we like them. <laughs> Um, so this is what um, anyone else would probably say, oh, so you mean underrated? Well, I'm not going to call them that because I really don't like terms underrated. The only term I think is worse is overrated. <laughs> so we'll just go with, it's not popular, but I like it. So, Russell, what is your unpopular, but you like it? So before we had a quite terrific Netflix series that, and he's now back in the MCU and he's a great inclusion in one of the Spider-Man films, we got a Daredevil film in 2003. And I have so much fun with Mark Stephen Johnson's film. I don't think it's a masterpiece. I think it's quite flawed. It is perhaps the most 2000 superhero film we could get from the way it's action is shot and edited through to the Evanescence song that is its theme. And the Evanescence song is a banger, but it is also very 2000s. But I have a lot of fun with this. I think Ben Affleck is pretty decent in this, as he is in his Batman films. I think Ben Affleck is a good actor who can take on these roles. And sometimes the film doesn't quite match his abilities, but he's good here. And I also love this film for its villains. So Colin Farrell is bullseye, and he is ridiculous in this film. And I love how ridiculous he is from his trench coat swooping nature through to his uh, bizarre ability to basically hit any target of anything. That's his power. But the real standout for me in Daredevil 2003 is Michael Clark Duncan as the kingpin. He is such an intimidating presence here. He is so effective in this character. And I think this character has been great on screen every iteration he's had from um, Vincent D'Onofrio through to the his presence in Into the Spider-Verse. He's always a great presence. He always used really well. But here in particular, I have a lot of fun with this. So yeah, Daredevil 2003 is not a masterpiece, but I'll happily rewatch it for all that it is, for all of its 2000s-ness, for all of its performances that work, for a banger of a theme song. This is my pick. It was nearly my pick as well. Um, I have a lot of um, affection for Daredevil. I remember enjoying it in the cinema and I've watched it repeatedly since then. I like that it's a harder edge and it's notable that the Netflix series did the same thing. It'll be interesting to see um, if the uh, future iteration of Daredevil also has that harder edge um, because there's a lot of you know angst. There's a lot of torturedness in Daredevil, um, Matt Murdock, and I think that this film does that pretty well. You agree, James? Yeah, I quite like um, 2003's Daredevil. I remember watching it a lot as I was growing up, and I recall the director's cut. Was, I recall that was the that was an improved version because you got more of Matt Murdock doing his lawyering thing. So you saw both sides of the coin regarding his character, and it's funny enough. 
a subplot involving Coolio improved that film. Yeah, Coolio is in that. It's not something you can say very often. Yeah, tell me about it. Well then, my unpopular, but I like it choice, is also from um, 2003. And it is Hulk. Or as some like to call it, Don't Make Me Ang Lee. But uh, personally, I'm very pleased that Ang Lee made Hulk. Um, I actually rewatched it in preparation for this. Um, just uh, yesterday and was I'm very glad I did because I was slightly concerned I might not like it as much as I used to because I absolutely adored it when it came out in 2003 but I loved it again I think it's a thrillingly stylized viscerally enthralling exhilaratingly emotional and ingeniously inventive superhero drama rage power and freedom now watching it carefully there's a lot of things that it's evident this is a very highly stylized film um, something and I noticed on a rewatch is much of the production design is green. There's a lot of um, wall colouring and paint on backgrounds and just people's clothes. It's like there's a lot of green here, um, which is kind of on the nose. But interestingly, it took me multiple viewing before I noticed it. It also is a film that has multiple crossings of the 180 degree line. Um, and for those who are not familiar with that, Generally, if, you've, if you're filming a dialogue sequence, you'll have one character will be set up on the left and the other will be set up on the right. And any time that you cross that 180 degree line so that the, effectively the position switch creates a disruption. And Ang Lee does that in Hulk a lot. Now, in, and this kind of disruption, um, the disruption of the cinema style is something Ang Lee has done throughout his career, um, for better or worse, depending on... Um, on who you talk to. Now, I think one of the reasons Hulk gets a bad rap is that that visual style can be distracting because famously in Hulk, there are a lot of instances where you've got effectively frames um, on the screen where it's just like, hey, we're putting this, making it look like it's a comic book. Now it's not really doing that because we read comic books and we read films in a different way, but it is certainly disrupting the cinema style. Now, maybe some of the effects look a bit daft, but they I think they feel a piece of the whole aesthetic because the distortions and transformations of cinematic space reflect the distortions and transformations of bodies. Now, maybe this stylization is drawing too much attention to itself for some viewers, and I get that. But for me, it thrillingly conveys the freedom and exhilaration of Bruce Banner's releases which he characterizes as rage, power, and freedom. Once he's transformed, it's easy to see why Bruce likes it, why he likes being what he describes as the mindless Hulk. But there are also these paradoxical moments of peace when Hulk communes with nature. Um, early on, there's um, a lot of close-ups of bark, lichen, and moss, and these continue later on, particularly when we get Hulk on his own, surrounded by nature. And um, it's, it's as though he is a force of nature that has been made manifest. And for me, that works really well, because um, what I want most from a superhero film is to feel not is to feel a part of it, to say, right, we're not just putting superpowers on screen, we're bringing you in and you can feel a part of it. Because the superhero genre is always about the exploration and a proper use of power. And I think Hulk explores this distinctively, imaginatively, 
and delightfully. So that is my unpopular, but I like it choice, Ang Lee's Hulk from 2003. What are your two views on it? I remember coming into this one with, there was all that baggage of people calling it boring and how could you make a Hulk film like this? And then The Incredible Hulk came out and people were like, yeah, this is what we want from a Hulk film. We want destruction. But I came to this one and I was just, re I really liked what Ang Lee did. Because one thing the comics does, which is really interesting, is question whether the Hulk truly is the monster or if Bruce Banner is the true monster and Hulk is just essentially keeping him back from the world. And it especially goes back to his tortured relationship with his antagonistic father. And Angley's Hulk seems to get closest to that really interesting side of it and go quite psychological on Bruce Banner. And I think that's a really interesting thing to do more than just Hulk smash, Hulk destruction. But that is also quite good to watch, in all honesty. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this film is fine. I haven't watched it in a fair few years. Um, I just kind of am with the feeling I'd like to watch more Hulk individual events. I know the whole legal universe alone, the individual rights, so it gets complicated. But as a character, I'd love him to be more than just a supporting character that he currently has become. Um, I'm generally curious about She-Hulk in that regard. So, yeah, I think this film is good. Um, I think I remember it having a giant fight in a cloud at the end, which seemed to be the style of the time, was to have giant <laughs> evil clouds. But, um, yeah, no, it's, it's a perfectly good pick. Yes. Now, speaking of um, fights in peculiar spaces, James, what about your um, <clears throat> unpopular pick, which is seems to involve a certain amount of combat in some kind of zone? Well, my unpopular pick is 2008's Punisher Warzone. Now, of all the Marvel characters you could base a film around, I think I would be have some kind of truth in saying the Punisher is one of the most difficult to do nowadays because with how prevalent gun violence is and how the Marvel characters image and logo has been co-opted by the very people Frank Castle would massacre, it feels like a minefield to approach that kind of thing. For me, Lexi Alexander's film had the right idea by taking this character and putting in essentially a grimy grindhouse flick that's so over the top and stylized and grisly with Castle essentially playing the straight man to the, to the madness that's going on around him. It's the kind of film where the studio um, essentially forced the filmmakers to include some villains who were um, doing parkour, which yeah, how dated does that make this? And the film has, the film essentially goes, okay, we'll include that. And then the Punisher reacts to it with a rocket launcher. It's, it's, it's a fun sequence in a fun, it's the kind of film where somebody gets punched in the face and their head explodes. It's, for me, it's a one of a kind grizzly gem that is very enjoyable it's, 
I don't think it's helped that it came out the same year as The Dark Knight and Iron Man when those two films <laughs> really changed the landscape for the genre. But for me, Punisher Wars, Warzone is my favourite of the Punisher films and I think it's probably the probably the film that we're never going to get again for Marvel characters. And that's all right. It's quite an interesting time capsule. Um, have either of you guys um, checked this one out? I think I have. I think I've seen this one. I think I've also seen the Thomas Jane one that came out a couple of years before this. Yeah. Um, I remember having fun. Isn't Dominic West the villain and he gets kind of put through a meat grinder thing and then gets his face stapled back together? Isn't he called like Jigsaw or something like that? Yes. Imagine this. The, the, it's been released by Lionsgate. The villain's called Jigsaw and there's a sequence where he forces a character to make a life or death choice. <laughs> Sounds so familiar. Hmm. Yeah, it kind of made me want to rewatch it. I, I remember having fun with it, but I want to rewatch it. I haven't seen it, seen that or indeed any of the Punisher movies, though I have seen the first season of Netflix's The Punisher. Mm. Um, I do think it's interesting, James, what you say that on the one hand, this would be a character that's ideologically difficult, but on a practical level is very straightforward because he doesn't have any superpowers and, all the, and he doesn't mm. even need the fancy weapons of Batman. He just has a lot of guns, which is probably why we have had multiple um, Punisher movies and mm. now series so yeah it would be tricky to see him fit into um the mcu as it stands um but you know i would be certainly up for seeing john bernthal's punisher come back um but yeah and i probably and i should check out the earlier films and i guess this is the one uh to what to look out for yeah <laughs> um so that's been We've been praising films and we've been uh, heaping praise on films that uh, we feel have been more deserving of it than has been. How about we move on to something a bit different than that? Um, As in some stinkers. Yeah, you read my mind, Vincent. Or should <laughs> I call you Professor X? Oh, God, is my hair, is my hair falling out again? No, I thought you looked like James McAvoy. Oh, lucky me. <laughs> but not like some sort of digitally youthified Patrick Stewart. Like in X-Men Last Stand. Or my stinker, which is X-Men Origins Wolverine. Now, um, I mentioned before that I thought um, Hulk explores power distinctively, imaginatively, and delightfully. X-Men Origins Wolverine does not. Now, I saw this when it came out in 2009, um, and I liked it. I saw it first time and thought, yeah, this is cool. I like it. It's fun. Now, I've rewatched it since then, and I found so many things wrong with it. So I'm not entirely sure what I, if I was just in a particularly good mood in that when I saw it in the cinema, or maybe uh, it's, the problems were not as glaring at that point, but they've become glaring since then. I mean, as the movie, the plotting is mechanical, the character motivations are protracted. The action is turgid. This is actually where the discontinuity of the X-Men franchise begins. I mean, I mentioned the digitally youthed Patrick Stewart, who appears at the end of the film to pick up these kids, it seems, 
And it's established actually that that takes place in 1979 because we have the Three Mile Island nuclear accident. And then, so the not too distant future is, well, wait, how distant in the future? Um, yeah, so that's annoying. And here's one, here's another one. The writers apparently don't even know what a Wolverine is because there's a point when the characters refer to a Wolverine howling. No, 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 no. A Wolverine is not a wolf. It's a completely different type of animal. Look it up, people. It's more like a badger. It's the type, it's a giant weasel. And it's such a disappointment because I love the character. I love Hugh Jackman and I love what Jackman had done with Logan Wolverine over the course of the previous X-Men films. And I really like the director, Gavin Hood. I think he has done so many um, great films like uh, Rendition and <clears throat> um, uh, Eye in the Sky. Um, but ugh. furthermore, the film even starts off promisingly. There's a title sequence um, that is great title sequence where we see Logan and Victor powering their way through these multiple wars. And then it goes so bad, so bad. <laughs> uh, and uh, so many like, oh, right, yes, now we're part of this super mutant hit squad. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yes, yes, now you need to come back. No. All right, yes. Now I do the thing. Oh, wait. <laughs> I could say many more things about why X-Men Origins Wolverine is painful, but I won't. I will refer you instead to the sequelizers, special season of prequelizers, where they dissect X-Men Origins Wolverine with a scalpel and suggest a preferable alternative. But yeah, that's one origin story I did not need. <laughs> Um, speaking of origin stories that um, have problems, James, mm -hmm. take us for a ride. Okay, so my stinker is a fascinating piece from the 2000s. During this time when anything could happen with these adaptations, we got Ghost Rider. This is from director uh, Mark Stephen Johnson, who also directed Daredevil. The end result is less favorable, I would say. So you have um, a stuntman, Johnny Blaze, who sells his soul to the devil, and he, he does it in order to save his dying father, but the devil tricks him. And the end result is leaving Johnny Blaze cursed forever to become the Ghost Rider which essentially means he has a flaming skull for a head, he rides a flaming motorcycle, and he is a lycra-wearing badass. Wait, is it lycra or leather? Uh, yes. Okay, I don't think it matters. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, now, you've got Nicolas Cage as the flaming skull, spirit of vengeance, riding a motorbike. This should be the very definition of badass and cool. Instead, it's a hot mess. It feels so ill-fitting for Cage. He gives this weird, awkward performance as Johnny Blaze. And when the character morphs into Ghost Rider, it's clearly a different actor just standing there doing all the stunts. It's very distracting. because It honestly reminded me of Shazam, 
in how you got the kids transforming into Zachary Levi. And it, the worst thing of it all is it's just really boring. You have this moment of essentially two ghost riders riding together on their flaming um, modes of transport. And it should be the build up to the badass final sequence. And instead, the elder statesman played by Sam Elliott, I believe, just goes, oh yeah, I can't do anymore. I'll leave you to it. So he just wasted the last of his power on a ride, not fighting the devil on a ride. Good job. Uh, it's it's just something which should have been far more fun time than it was. And uh, my pick is unfortunately Ghost Rider. Um, yeah, have either of you seen this? Oh yeah, I saw it in the cinema. And, you know, I didn't hate it, but it's funny when you talk about he becomes this sort of undead thing with a flight with a burning skull for a head. I was reminded of um, the special, the stunt in uh, um, A Bug's Life, Flaming Death, which <laughs> could be another name for Johnny Blaze as the Ghost Rider. He's Flaming Death. <laughs> uh, Russell? I can't remember if I've seen this. I've definitely seen a bit where he's riding off a, a skyscraper, but it doesn't leave any impression on me i can't remember at all i definitely haven't seen the sequel i might have seen this but like on tv years after its release yeah. i'll just repeat that as i always do whenever someone brings up the sequel ghost rider pisses fire in that one <laughs> i don't think this is the franchise for me <laughs> if you really want to see if um if you want a better version of ghost rider i would suggest agents of shield Ooh, good mm. call. Because he does crop up in that. Mm. Uh, All right. Russell? Round uh, us off. Uh, so there has been, my pick is of a quartet of superpowered individuals that has been done well once. It's done been well by Pixar when they did The Incredibles. The Incredibles is the greatest Fantastic Four film ever made. And it's not a Fantastic Four film. There have been multiple attempts at the Fantastic Four series. There's one that has never been released because it was a tax thing. It was a means them to keep the uh, rights. It was a con. Tim's story made two, and I've seen the second one, and it was pretty dire. But none are as bad as Josh Trank's Fantastic Four, a film so bad the director disowned it days before it came out. Um, it's from the same people who struggled so much to get a good X-Men film out, so you can determine how good it is oh it's a mess i saw this in the cinema it was a mess the first act is vaguely interesting in that it's them setting up a portal so they can go to another world and by going to this other world they gain powers they sort of doctor doom and you get another hour of like muddy beige nonsense <laughs> that i can't quite recall it got it's just I have no idea how it is so hard to make a good version of this story done. And this is this is quite terrible. And Josh Trank can direct a superhero film. We made Chronicle before this. And Chronicle is great fun. It's a found footage superhero film that's a lot of fun, that is quite inventive. Sadly, Max Landis wrote the script, so, you know, it has that to it. But, yeah, this Fantastic Four came out, was 
utterly dire. It's probably one of the worst super films I've ever sat through. And I've sat through every X-Men film, so you know it's pretty bad. I've sat through Howard the Duck and how the duck is utter bobbins. Um, yeah, this is just complicated in its plotting, but not in a satisfying way, kind of setting itself up as part of a, multi- a, a part of a, a wider universe, but not great actors are in this. Miles Teller's in this. Michael B. Jordan's in this. Um, I don't remember who else pops up. Jamie Mara. Bell is 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 the thing. Um, yeah, there's many, 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 many great acts in this, and it is dire. And I haven't watched since I went in cinema, and I watched in cinema because I'd run out of things to watch, and I had a free evening, so I went and watched this. <laughs> and <laughs> I have never quite had an experience as shockingly bad as watching this fantastic four or four fan fantastic four because the a in the title is a four i like to think of it as fantastic flaw <laughs> yeah now this is utter dross and uh, while i have critiques the mcu put it next to this and every single mcu film is head and shoulders above this even when it's a film i'm not really enjoyed i've enjoyed it more than this I hope none of you have seen this. Oh, I have. <laughs> I took my brother's opening day to see it. Oh, you cruel, cruel man. I was curious enough, but I had to take them. And they haven't let me forget it ever since. Um, <laughs> and the one thing I can't forget about this film is Ben Grimm's catchphrase, it's clobbering time, and how the origins in this version are from his older brother saying it before he starts hitting him, which is... Oh, I forgot that detail. Oh. Yeah. I, the thing about this is that they did a lot of reshoots. For it. it was re-edited heavily, and you can tell the bits that are reshoots because I think it's maybe Kate Mara, who's playing Sue Storm, has a wig on for the reshoots, and you can tell by the difference of hair. It's quite noticeable at times. There is so much broken with this film. And how it got to the stage where they released it in the form they did, they didn't think, oh, we should probably, you know, delay this for six months and then see what we can do in six months. But I mean, if you do that, you get a new mutant situation, which wasn't released for a very long time. And I don't hate the new mutant film. I thought it was quite interesting. But yeah, you get a film that doesn't get released for a long time because it gets passed around executives and they all have ideas of how to change it. And then it gets sold off to Disney and Disney just dump it during a pandemic. (laughs) Uh, I I didn't hate Fantastic Four from 2015, but if I was to think now about what did I like about it, I kind of draw a blank. (laughs) So terrifyingly, I will probably need to watch it again to make a more reasoned assessment. No, just assume that it's bad and and (laughs) leave it there. There are many, 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 many superhero films to watch. Don't choose this one. (laughs) The 90s one is on YouTube, I believe. Ooh, yeah, I keep circling. It was made quite cheaply. I think Robert Corman made it. And yeah, Roger um, Corman. Roger, my apologies to Mr. Corman. I think you're dead by now, but if you're not and you listen, no, I don't think so. Well, if you're listening, again, apologies for getting your name. We're going to apologize for saying you're dead. <laughs> and come on and shout at me. It'd be a fun yeah. interview. Definitely. Now <laughs> then, hmm. on a twist from our common Rotten Tomatoes game. Um, I thought we'd um, take a look at the lowest rated of our stinkers. 
Ooh. Now, a reminder that um, this uh, Rotten Tomatoes game is something I pinched from the Sequelizers podcast. Um, effectively, it's a matter of say of seeing. So, what is the guessing? What is the Rotten Tomatoes score for particular films? Remember, Rotten Tomatoes isn't an accurate aggregate. It's not an aggregate at all. It just means that um, the percentage of positive reviews for a particular film is what leads to it being rated fresh. And in order to be positive, it just needs to be three stars or more, five out of five or more, and so on. And, and that, when you get to that, it reaches 60%. So I thought, let's take the three stinkers that we've picked and ascertain which has the lowest score. <laughs> <laughs> so to start off then, Russell, what do you think is the Rotten Tomatoes score for X-Men Origins Wolverine. So I think this is in the 30s. I think that it will have been mostly disliked by critics, but there will still be a, a trench of critics that will give it time. Um, and I think if you really want to find fun things in X-Men Origins Wolverine, you can. I don't think it's very fun. I don't think it's very good, but... I'm going to say 34%. Russell is saying 34% for X-Men Origins Wolverine. James, what do you think? I'm thinking the 30s as well. Um, I'm going to go 31%. 31% for James. Okay. Next up, uh, let's go to James for James's choice for Fantastic Four from 2015. James. That's Russell's. Um, sorry, that was Russell's, wasn't it? Let's go to Russell's for that. What, Russell, what do you think is the Rotten Tomatoes score for Fantastic Four? Now, I think this was mostly hated by critics. I think this was, in fact, I saw this knowing that critics had slated this film, had given it one and two stars. I think. Mr. Commode gave it a particularly vicious rant because it deserves it. Actually, Commode was off. It was Robbie Collin who gave okay, it a massive... Okay, it was Robbie um, Collin. Who thrashed it. And so he I called think, it four. <laughs> I think that this is in the teens. I think you could probably get together about 10% of critics to give this free or more. And I don't think anyone would have said they loved it. So I'm going to say 11%. 11% for Russell. Okay. James, what do you think? Right, I'm going to look like a copycat because I was thinking around that area as well. Um, fine, let's play that game. 12%. 12, okie dokie. Right then. Okay, now, apologies. Now for James's pick, what do you think is... Uh, James, what do you think is the... Ron Tomato's score for Ghost Rider from 2007. Um, I don't think it's one which was well received either um, by the general masses. Um, I'm going to take a punt and say 27%. 27% for Ghost Rider. And Russell, what do you think? I'm going to go higher. I think that it was still a time when there was like that trench of critics that would love any superhero film. And I don't think Ghost Rider is hated as Fantastic Four and Wolverine, or Origins Wolverine. I think the Wolverine is quite liked. Um, so I think there'll be more critics who are on board of it. 
I don't think it's over 50%. I don't think there's enough critics who like it that much. But this definitely has a vibe of Empire might give it three stars. Not to disparage Empire, great magazine, but they are quite a good barometer of where the wins are. So I'm going to say 42% for this. 42%. But I might be wrong. I'm just, you know, speaking in the dark here. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay, lovely. So to recap, um, for X-Men Origins, Wolverine, Russell says 34, James says 31. For Fantastic Four, Russell says 11, James says 12. And for Ghost Rider, Russell says 42, James says 27. Which means we have a clear winner. Um, And that winner is Russell. Oh! oh. Because you were were closer um, in both respects. Although, on two of them, you were very close. On another one, you were way out. Um, (laughs) But you were still very close on two of them. In fact... Funnily enough, James was very close on all three, but not as close on two of them. <laughs> because <laughs> for X-Men Origins Wolverine, the actual score is 38%. So, yeah, uh, slightly closer there, Russell. For Fantastic Four, both of you overshot slightly. <laughs> oh, no. The score oh, no. is 9%. <laughs> Good Lord. I mean... yeah. No argument. Still too high. <laughs> Even trouble digits. Good God. Yeah. Um, and then for Ghost Rider, uh, James, you were very close with 27, and Russell, you were way off. Um, the actual score for Ghost Rider is 26%. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> oh, my so, God. Yeah. So Russell still comes out um, a winner there, but uh, none of these movies come out winners. They are all certified rotten. <laughs> This is a breakthrough beyond your father's dreams. Thank you. We're producing a thousand megawatt surplus. The power of the sun in the palm of my hand. With all of that marvelous rottenness past, <laughs> shall we talk about something that's quite new and and uh, we've uh, i think all seen in cinemas quite recently yeah something potentially a bit better james what are we going to talk about this month what film are we going to talk that's new and exciting well um we're going to talk about the new film from director scott derrickson the black phone (laughs) (laughs) now to continue on the marvel connections this was the film Scott Derrickson made after he stepped away from making the sequel to 2016's Doctor Strange, which became, as we all know it, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Now, this story was this film was adapted from a short story written by author Joe Hill, and it's set in the summer of 1978 when a 13-year-old boy named Finney, <clears throat> when a 13-year-old boy named Finney is picked on he's trying he's shy he's having a tough time of it and what's how could this get any worse well he becomes abducted by a child murderer called the grabber oh it's all going wrong for finney isn't it when he wakes up he's in a soundproof basement there's appears to be no way of escape there's only a disconnected black phone on the wall so he does he's 
doesn't know what to do. And then the disconnected phone starts ringing. When Finney picks it up, he hears the voices of the previous victims of the grabber. And what happens then is they pass along advice to help Finney escape and to try and make sure he breaks the cycle so he isn't the latest victim of this horrific murderer. Now, this story feels very Stephen King, which is very appropriate considering he's actually the father of author Joe Hill. Um, and what you have in this film is central to it an unsettling performance from Ethan Hawke. He's such an expressive figure as this unsettling child napper who's got most of his face covered in a mask. A mask, by the way, which was designed by the one and only Tom Savini. So there's a factoid for you. And while Finney's stuck in that underground basement, while he's struggling through this horrific scenario, his little sister, Gwen, is out there having visions which she sees her brother and she believes they can help and help lead to his escape and and this is brought alive by Madeleine McGraw a young actress who's such a scene stealer as this assertive little girl that's ready to face the bullies and do what she can to ensure the police actually do something about this now I said before it feels very Stephen King and I think that's also true in how it feels like such a rich source material which is made from a complete which is made a complete tale but the adaptation feels like you had some leftovers which I felt could have had a bit more fleshing out and probably do go to that in the source material. For example, James Ransom's role or the journey taken by Finney and Gwen's father, I feel like could have done with a few more scenes just to add to that. And there probably is in the short story to make that seem a bit more seamless. And what we have in this film, I think is a good 102 minute film, but I think they could have made a great 80 minute film. But it's still, I still think it's a fantastic watch and a fun, fun little horror treat of this year. Um, and how about you guys? Did you, did you hang up on this film or did you absolutely pick up? Yeah, I, I think that this film is decent. I particularly liked the opening act. I think the opening act before the Finney is grabbed when it's about him going his day-to-day -day life and then there's just this presence that's taking kids is exceptional. And I think that's when the film's at its best. I think that it gets a bit stuck in the middle of repetition of him meeting the ghost children and having encounters with the grabber. It kind of gets a bit stuck and then has a kind of fun finale. But I thought Ethan Hawke was great. I think Ethan Hawke is great. I think he's great in everything, but I think he's really great here. He doesn't do villains too often. And this is just one of his uh, better performances in recent years. Let's not say Ethan Hawke always gives a great performance, but this is exceptional. He's exceptional here. So yeah, I liked it enough. I particularly liked the first 30 minutes or so. 
because it was so great at setting up its world, setting up the stakes, setting up what was going on to these kids. And it was doing it in a way that didn't feel quite like Stranger Things, but which there's a tendency, I think, now for films like this to feel like Stranger Things, but, you know, uh, Child Killer, for example. And it doesn't quite do that. So, yeah, I was here for the first act, and I think it's a pretty decent horror film. Oh, and it, yeah. made me, it made me add one jump scare that I jumped out of my skin and loudly said, fuck in the cinema. There's one bit which got me immediately. <laughs> I, I actually had that uh, twice. Um, twice. T- t- it had for me two really great jump scares. Um, I think I agree with you, Russell. I think it's at its strongest, um, perhaps ironically, before the kidnapping takes place because seeing the home life um, that Finney and his sister have is heartbreaking um, because their, I mean, their mother is absent, I think, deceased, and the father is, a, is an abusive drunkard. Um, yeah, I mean, there are some scenes of domestic violence that are very upsetting, I think, um, but effectively so, and they're not sort of sensationalised or lurid. They are just distressing. Um, but I think it's a very cunning and creepy period horror um, of domestic terrors and spooky jump scares. Um, and something I really liked about it was its breadcrumb storytelling, because there are multiple aspects um, that are sort of that are foreshadowed. So something is there and it comes and then it's, it comes up again later. Um, like, you know, one character, there's a character who we see early on who is a martial artist. And this turns out to be important later on when Finney is trapped in the basement he uses he's trying to find various ways to escape um, and the different ways in which he escape all end up being useful later on even if he doesn't escape using this it becomes beneficial later on weirdly there was one scene there was a sequence in it that reminded me of old boy um because you know which also features someone being you know wrongfully imprisoned for a stretch of time so um that's the connection there don't worry it doesn't to have anything quite as stomach churning as <laughs> old boy um and i also think it's a really good film for anyone who's been a victim of bullying um or indeed you know certainly domestic abuse um i can't speak to that but i was a, you know I, I was bullied when i was that kind of age um and there are some moments in it that i found very cathartic and satisfying um, yes, there are some jump out of your skin moments, but there's also some punch the air moments. Um, yeah, I, uh, I would thoroughly recommend the black phone. I yeah, mean, and on that yes. bullying front, it is. I think one thing to praise for me is that the reason I like the first act so much is that Scott Derrickson is really great here at showing us the world of the kids, and the kid actors are really good. The ones who play the various young teenagers and their siblings are really good and it feels a lived-in world which for me gets slightly lost because we end up in a basement for so much of it but that kind of like opening drawing us in is so good because the kids are good because Scott's like teased out great performances from them so yeah on that front it's it's great And as a kid saying how about, about how the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the best film of all time. <laughs> What's not to love? <laughs> well, quite. Oh, <laughs> you goof. 
Well, isn't that just peachy king? You need some help? You see that? Yeah. <laughs> Would you hand me my hat? Yes, sir. I am a part-time magician. Are those type of ones in there? Would you like to see a magic trick? So that's our meet discussion for this month. I, we all recommend that you check out the Black Phone. I believe it will come to home premiere services. Uh, I presume very soon, but yeah. it's been out for a few. Yeah, probably with it well, by the time. I mean, by the time the episode comes out, it may have had its home release um, announced. Mm. Mm. And it's still got a few cinema lists, cinema times dotted around, and True. it is. Oh. Uh, definitely worth going to cinema for. Yeah. Yes. So that's our uh, new release, but we have a few more recommendations for you. you haven't we're not quite done with you. We've got our something old, something new, and our snaff, which um, when we get to Vincent will explain. So I have the something old this week, and I have picked a film called "I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore." which is a film from 2017 that is on Netflix. And Netflix picked it up at the Sundance Film Festival that year. It won the Grand Jury Prize at the festival for uh, US Dramatic Competition. And it is from director Macron Blair, who's probably more familiar as an actor, but he is the chap who's going to do the tech, the Toxic Avenger remake, which is coming up maybe this year, maybe next year. And it is this wonderfully odd film that I was aware of but I hadn't seen until quite recently that follows Melanie Linsky's character as she tries to track down her grandmother's stolen jewellery so she has her house broken into and it's the last straw so she takes on her hand to track down her grandmother's jewellery and as with the best of these kind of fun American low-key thrillers and sort of in the mold of something like I don't know, like Blue Ruin, well, no, these are all dark. Yeah, it gets dark and weird and interesting. And so she goes off and hunts down her jewellery, gets embroiled with Elijah Wood's rather interesting character who helps her. He has nunchucks and throwing stars, and he's a bit of an odd character in the best way that Elijah Wood has been since Lord of the Rings. Like He plays these characters so well, and they get embroiled in this strange world. And I'm not going to say where it goes, because I was quite surprised at the places it goes, but it is thoroughly entertaining, kind of a bit downbeat in its comedy it's a bit nihilistic of its approach of the world but it's fairly entertaining it's on netflix it's been on my radar for a long time i've been aware of it on netflix for a super long time but it took another podcast the sudden double deep podcast covering it for me to go oh i should watch that and so i did and i had a really fun time and it's not quite horror but it is certainly got some gore to it and it's got some violence to it and it's also got Jane Levy pops up in a role and I adore Jane Levy and I would love her to see her more in films again. I think she's now firmly working in TV land, but yeah, this is on Netflix and it's one of those rare times that net, we're not rare. Sometimes Netflix have a good film of their own and you should watch it. And that is, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. I heartily recommend it. Uh, James, what's our something new? Well, um, with the recent release of the trailer for Ty West's new film, Pearl, I'm going to recommend the film that Pearl is actually a prequel to. Released earlier this year, it's Ty West's X. Nothing to do with X-Men, just the letter X. Now, the setting is Texas. It's 1979. 
we have a group of young filmmakers who go to this secluded farmhouse and they're eager to get there and make an adult film. Something which catches the interest of the elderly hosts of that farmhouse. What Ty West has created is a tribute to the 1970s slashers. And this is evident right from an opening visual gag regarding aspect ratios, which is a fun little thing to watch unfold. And what the film does, it takes this respectful approach in tackling two maligned forms of filmmaking, which is the horror genre and pornography. And it does this by adopting a sex positive attitude while also crafting the tension so well. It's a film that's fun to watch and so grisly. Um, but on top of that, most unexpected is how heartfelt it is. It offers this saddening look at aging and that's best exemplified with a touching cover of Fleetwood Mac's um, amazing song, Landslide. And with this film, if what you fancy is Boogie Nights meets The Visit with added reverence for 70 slashers, then let me say, X marks the spot. Yeah. <laughs> uh... Nice. Yeah, I certainly enjoyed um, X a lot. I'm, I've not yet seen I Don't Feel home in, at Home in This World anymore, but I will check it out on your recommendation, Russell. But yeah, I thought that um, X was it was sweaty, it was grisly, and it was knowing um, and did a lovely um, engagement with bodies being exposed and opened. And as you say, it had some very uh, nice things to say about cinema in terms of you know the way it plays with aspect ratio and some very jarring edits um yeah the kind of film that when it needs to be it's very silly and when it needs to be it's very nasty mm. yeah this is somewhere i didn't see this when it came out and i have to see it before the um new film comes out i almost watched it today but i instead watched tron for the first time so put my hand up and say i got distracted and watched a film like Tron. But yeah, X is definitely on my list. Um, I don't know why I didn't watch it at the time. It just sort of passed me by. But yeah, it looks like both fun and also interesting. Definitely the stuff about aging sounds interesting. Comparing Boogie Nights meets The Visit sounds great. <laughs> and that leaves us with our snaff. Vincent, Indeed. what's our snaff? Well, our snaff is something not a film. And in this case, Snaff is a Snaffpunt. No, that's terrible. <laughs> Our Snaff is a, a mini um, mini series, The Essex Serpent. Now, this is available on Apple TV Plus. So, if you've got Apple TV Plus, I highly recommend it. And if you happen to have got an Apple product or some other way of getting five, however long it is, of free Apple Plus TV, or you actually want to pay for it, then the X Six Serpent is something to look out for, um, and um, you can watch it over in a quite a good binge series. I think it's based on a novel by Sarah Perry, um, six parts, um, directed by Cleo Bernard. And what we have in the X Six Serpent is a series is a number of intertwined stories. There's a London widow who digs for fossils and has a distant relationship with her son, but a close relationship with her maid. There's a village um, minister priest who preaches and believes very much in reason. There's a village that reacts with hysteria to some strange deaths in their community. And there's a London doctor trying to develop medical science 
um, in some radical ways. Now, all of this means that it's a very English tale of modernity, meat and tradition and the kind of struggle between those. Um, it makes great use of um, the landscape of Essex. Um, and it's got great British stars in Tom Hiddleston and Frank Delane and Clements Posey and Claire Danes. OK, not entirely British, but it does deliver on so many quintessentially British aspects, class, development, reform. And what we have in um, uh, The Essex Serpent is a lovely encapsulation of these different clashes. It's set in the late 19th century, which emphasizes modernity versus tradition um, in the village where um, events take place. Um, it's beliefs uh, for um, safety, um, in a safety to be found in reason or in superstition. And then there's uh, medical developments over these new forms of surgery. Um, the premise is that there is this um, village um, in Essex where uh, there are some strange deaths take place and the villagers believe this is being perpetrated by a monster, a giant serpent um, from their legends. Um, the village minister is trying to say, no, 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 we need to you know, use reason, there's no uh, and logic, it's um, in rationality. Um, and then the London Widow, played by uh, Claire Danes, doing, I must say, an impeccable British accent. Um, uh, she's, uh, comes, she, she's also um, a scientist, and uh, she believes that this, there may actually be a creature here. Maybe it's um, like it's some kind of um, believed extinct creature, like a, like a plesiosaur. So she comes in search um, of the serpent, and then we have her as the London figure clashing with the villagers. Um, and then what we've also got, this is perhaps what you know, worked particularly well for me, um, when we, there are also sequences that happen in London where there are beliefs over conservative or radical policy. Um, my personal favourite character is um, the character of um, the maid mentioned before, Martha, played by Hayley Squires, um, who um, has, so here we have a servant character who has a recognition of inequality and its placement specifically linked to issues of housing and sanitation. We see Martha meeting with MPs and demanding a social housing bill only to be shot down because that's a socialist idea. And we said earlier, we were gonna leave the politics behind. <laughs> well, they've come back. They always come back. <laughs> um, and it, but it's really nice, I think, the way the film, sorry, the series balances these kinds of um, socio-political themes with the suggestion of something supernatural, um, or maybe it's not supernatural, but certainly something mysterious and uncanny. Um, we've also got love triangles, or perhaps that should be love pentagons, with him wanting her, but being with her, and she wants, and she wants him, but also him, and she will do, and so on and so on. It's all very dramatic. And it's shot with a wonderful natural beauty that is also melancholic. So I think this is the Essex Serpent is the best sort of British drama. It knows the personal and the social matters um, and the political issues. It engages with these, but it never stints on the visuals. Um, it is a lush um, show, to, um, show to watch, even while the visuals are often of um, fairly bleak environments. There's that beautiful bleakness. Um, and if you ever wanted to, and if you've never thought about visiting the 
Essex estuaries watching this might change your mind. Or maybe <laughs> it'll say, no, I am never fucking going there. <laughs> so that is my something not a film, The Essex Serpent on Apple TV. I am quite terrible at using my Apple TV. I have a, well, I have access to Apple TV and I'm just really bad at watching shows on it. So I, I haven't watched enough of them and I am aware of The Essex Serpent. Maybe I should spend the time and watch it. Maybe I should put some of those Fright Fest films down that I've been watching recently in preparation for the festival and just take some time to go and wallow in the 19th century and Tom Hiddleston's gorgeousness. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> It sounds like everything that comes out of Apple TV, especially the shows, are the kind of stuff that I should be watching. But of all the things I need, another subscription service is not it. <laughs> Fair dues. Maybe well, a new Apple phone then. Uh, I've got a new phone recently, so I yeah. don't think so. Well, oh dear. look out for it. There are plenty of... Um, uh, well, products you can have that provide offers like a few months of Apple TV for free. So look out for those. Okay. I'm going to add it to my list, though, to really go through Apple TV and watch. Like, I've not seen Severance. I've not seen Dickinson. There's like a couple of TV shows that, and they spend money on their TV shows. They put out good TV shows. I mean, yes, they are an evil corporation. They're not our sponsors. That's Disney Plus. We can say Apple TV are evil. But um, yeah. They put out good shows. We have so, to offer a disclaimer that Disney Plus are not actually our sponsor. No, I think if we say it enough, we'll just will it into being. Oh, fair enough. If and we just we can, keep repeating yeah. it, they're just like, hey, you keep mentioning us. Here, have some money. I think that's how Disney works. Okay, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm up for it. <laughs> well, I tried that with Nintendo and it didn't work, so hopefully Disney will take the bait. Come on, Disney, you can do it. Yes. We're really excited for your Predator film. Apparently it's good. Come on, yeah. give us the money. We can be your prey, which we already are, let's face it. <laughs> the serpent has come. She was taken for her sins. No, it was an accident. God will look after her now. So there you have... Uh, two films and a TV show to go with amongst of other Marvel shows and a film in cinemas and 15 films at a film festival that we're all excited for. We've given you a lot this month. There's so much genre and horror stuff for you to watch. Oh, I think we're going to need to have a cup of tea after all this, um, which only leaves one thing left to do, which is to say where you can find us. So James, if we were wondering the, uh, trying to find the Essex Serpent out in the real world, and you had some suggestions to give as to its location or what it actually is, where would we find that? Well, if you're asking me about that, you're not going to get any good answers. But <laughs> what the hell? I'll humour you. Um, you can find me on Twitter and letterboxd at RoddersJ04. That's with two Ds. And I also do uh, reviews, articles, um, podcast appearance on my site, thereviewingrodders.co.uk so yeah come check that out and i'll see you guys next month and vincent if we were wanting to know just how many films you're going to watch in one day at fright fest how exhausted you'll be at what point you'll hit the wall that is the fright fest wall because we all hit it at some point during the festival like 
why have I done this? Why am I watching 22, 23 films in a short period of time? Where would you find that? Well, you will actually find all of my reviews of Fright Fest, um, along with uh, reviews or links to the reviews that I write and the various nonsense I spout um, by on Twitter and uh, Instagram and <clears throat> letterboxed at Dr. Gain. That's D-R-G-A-I-N-E. Um, I'll be, that's where you can find links to um, the reviews that I post and also those that I write in more detail for The Geek Show, Bloody Good Screen and The Critical Movie Critics. Just recently, my review of Thor, Love and Thunder went up on The Critical Movie Critics. So that's where you can find me and perhaps also where I'll be moaning about, oh dear God, why is it six o'clock on the Friday of Fright Fest and already I want to go to bed for three days. <laughs> and Russell, knowing just how frightful you like it, how, where will you be telling us about your frightful experiences? So all my frightful experiences will be chronicled on Twitter at Russ Loves Movies, which is where I share any reviews and podcast appearances, anything for our main strand of Not Just For Kids. Over the next month, we will be putting out some specials. So we put out Carry On and um, Harry Potter recently. James is on the Harry Potter episode. We managed to skillfully thread the needle that is discussing J.K. Rowling without, you know, discussing too swearing. <laughs> um, and coming up we will have an episode on james bond we've got an episode in the rescues down under we'll have an episode on bluey fingers crossed if i can record it with the chap i'm going to record it with uh episodes in tron tron legacy shrek 2 a whole heap of random episodes before we hit our animation series in september we'll also have some fright fest stuff additionally there'll be some interviews of some of the teams behind this year's films and we will be putting out around just after Fright Fest our picks. It might be in the form of another episode, or it might be a standalone episode. We'll decide that near the time. And the other thing to look out for in the next month or so is I will be popping up on the Fundamentals podcast talking about Futurama and the Moving Pictures Review podcast talking about kids' horror. So I have done two guests' appearances recently. I have more in the works with other things. It's People ridiculously have heard me speak in late without films and TV shows and want me to do it again. So, you know, ridiculous people they are. So, yeah. So go on, Russ Loves Movies. You'll find everything you need to there. That was a long spiel. And so let's say goodbye. Go off and watch a whole heap of films. Go off and maybe get an Apple TV subscription and dive into those. Because as with me, I'm sure many of you have probably only ever seen Ted Lasso at a push. Maybe you need to watch a few other ones. Mythic Quest is great. If you've not seen Mythic Quest, that's a really great TV show. And we'll all wish you safe journeys through the next month. And we'll see you in September. Now, it's bye for me and you guys. It's stay marvellous, stay frightful, and watch out for that serpent. <laughs> and don't be a, tr a motherfucker trying to ice skate uphill. <laughs>